All right, let's go James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If uh, you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really awesome important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want, we want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by, the, by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him, made sense through knowing him. Um, and if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in your heart and life, then it just makes sense to be you know, getting your nose into a Bible as much as possible. I think he'll use it for good things. Um, and so if you don't have one that you can call yours, take that one, and I'll call it the best part of my day. Uh, so we took a break last week, uh, but we are back in the thick of it now. Uh, we are, uh, welcome back to the book of James, everybody. Um, and so if you are new here or new-ish, I guess, uh, James is a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, a guy who did not at all trust the messianic claims of his half-brother uh, throughout the gospel accounts. It's uh, the, the, the kind of the, the picture that we get of Jesus's family in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they kind of held him at, at arm's length uh, during his earthly ministry. Uh, but all that changed, and it changed really, really fast post-resurrection. All right? Resurrections tend to kind of have that effect on people. They tend to mess with people's worldview. All right? And so that's what, what happened to James. All right? And so uh, James eventually changed his mind after the resurrection. I don't know if you've ever come across one, but resurrections just kind of fiddle with things. All right? And so it's what they do. Uh, but James finally gets to where he needs to get to, finally figures out what he needs to figure out. Uh, and by the writing of this letter, all right, however many years later, uh, maybe up to 10 years later probably, uh, by the writing of this letter, James has not only decided that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and has done exactly what he came to do, all right, uh, you know, die on the cross for, as a substitute for the payment of our sins and then rise again from the dead as a down payment for our own future resurrection. Small deals, all right, just a couple things on Jesus' to-do list. But James has not only figured out, locked in on those realities, those earth-shaking realities, but he has also quickly risen through the supposed ranks of the leadership of the early church. In fact, by the time that this letter is written, we think that he's probably seen as the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's a big shift, right? To go from kind of doubting, not really sure you want to, to buy into this, to leading everybody else to walk in this and believe this. Something changed in that boy, right? And that's what the resurrection did. But um, So we're pretty sure that James, as a letter, is written very early on in the timeline of the New Testament. There's some debates swirling around all of it, but uh, a lot of people place it in the early to mid-40s AD, which means it predates most of the other things that are written, maybe all the other things that are written in the New Testament. Uh, but even though it's early, this letter is still coming after a major event in the early church. It's the scattering out of Jerusalem by the persecution that was instigated by uh, a Pharisee named Saul. That's Acts chapters 8 and 9. And so what we have now is Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians thrown into one big, happy, never-have-any-sparks family, right? And that's, that's just kind of how that, that goes. Cultures are clashing, things are flaring up, and everything is exacerbated, exacerbated by kind of occasional waves of persecution, right? 
What a, what a fun time in the history of the church. Anybody ready to go back to those romantic days of the early church? Sometimes people like to, to quote Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Um, about how everyone was meeting in homes and uh, uh, they were sharing everything in common and they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers and they were listening to the apostles' teaching and, quote, all was upon every soul. What a time, right? People like to quote those texts as if they kind of showcased some form of kind of untarnished period in church history. And, if we, you know, we can only get back to that simplicity, Right? We've made things too complicated. Uh, if we want things to be good again, the church would finally be healthy again if we just stripped everything away. Uh, and so and the answer is to, to make it more simple, right? But that time period was also marked by the apostles constantly getting arrested and beaten and you know, questioned and sometimes killed. Um, that time was also marked by a bitter disagreement between Greek-speaking uh, Jewish Christians and Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians because one of those groups thought that their old ladies was getting shorted in the distribution of the bread, and so they were bickering about stuff. And also that time period was marked by a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who tried to lie about this gift they were giving that they weren't actually giving, but they made this big show of it so they could try to receive praise, and so God killed them. But man, it was simple, right? <laughs> Woo! Let's get back to those times. Now, see, the truth is that the church has always, emphasis on always, been a, just an absolute mess. Because the church has always, emphasis on always, existed in real time and space with real sinners packed into a room together who are in desperate need of the perfect righteousness of their Savior. There's never been an innocent time. There's never been a golden age. There's never been the untarnished moment. To get there, you've got to trace the history of God's people back to a rebellion in the garden. Ever since that moment, it's been kind of, kind of chaos. And it's exactly this kind of working to figure it out that James writes this letter into. All right, that's... That's the tone and the culture that he's writing this letter into. Specifically, he's writing it into a time period uh, when, the, when the church is trying their best to figure out exactly what is and is not on the list of things that God's people are and do. Like, like what makes the cut on that? So the last couple of installments that we've had for James, um, we, we looked at this kind of larger theme of of. of you know, what to do when God's people find themselves staring down the barrel of trials in their lives. And so how do God's people think? How do God's people react and, and respond to trials? How do they view them and, 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 and do something about them? And because of James's context, because of what we can assume that he's writing this letter into, we know that James means all the way up to persecution in his definition of trials. All right, um, it, it, He's not talking about light fare here. Now that does not mean that does not mean that lesser quote unquote trials are are not included in what he's talking about. Christians that are facing lesser trials uh, don't need to sit down and shut up because you know we can find and point to somebody else that's having a harder day than you. And trials are still trials. Uh, uh, trials are genuinely hard to deal with no matter what shape and severity they come packaged in. But James says that for the Christian. 
That for the Christian, because we come to uh, the table with eternal perspective and because we, uh, what we hold up as most valuable and most treasured as, is different than what the rest of the world holds up as most valuable and most treasured, James says that we can actually account of trials, classify trials as something that produces joy for us. And if you're not paying attention, that's about as countercultural of a statement that you can make, Right? In fact, it's entirely upside down from the rest of the way that the world thinks and operates. We live in a world where where people do everything in their power to run in the opposite direction of trials. Run in the opposite direction of hardship. We avoid them at all costs. And for good and obvious reasons, right? Without a Christian's eternal perspective, if all you've got is your 80 years to kind of try to eke out something that you believe is a happy ending, well then trials can only ever be categorized as a setback to what you're aiming for. They can't be categorized as something else than that. It's something that robs you of everything that you're wanting and chasing after. There's no other category to put them in. Joy thief is your only option available. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we understand that the finish line that everybody else is chasing after isn't actually the best finish line. It's not the, it's not the right finish line. And so two weeks ago, two weeks ago, James told us to just genuinely ask God for wisdom. Ask him for wisdom. Don't, don't come to him in some double-minded manner. The, uh, this is a, a proof of whether or not you actually believe that he's who he says he is. But if you're convinced that God is exactly who he claims to be, well, then it's not some complicated thing. Just ask. Just ask him for wisdom. God delights in giving you wisdom and giving wisdom to those that need to endure trials. In fact, he's never failed to give wisdom to those who come to ask him in faith. So ask him. And that's where we left things off a couple of weeks ago. You ready to get back into chapter 1? Starting in verse 9. Starting in verse 9, it says this. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his what? Exaltation. Let's call a time out there. So there's another countercultural claim that James makes that he's going to have to answer for, right? That feels upside down. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. On the surface, that seems pretty backwards. So what do we do without, about such a paradoxical statement? Well, the word lowly there is a Greek word that's used to describe something of humble or inferior station. A category of life stage that is below others. Meaning, economics play a role in this, but so do a lot of other things. Things like uh, social status, career position, uh, place in the family, etc., And in addition to James, there's actually a couple of very notable places that this Greek word is also used in other places in the New Testament. Uh, And so uh, Luke records Mary uh, using this word, the same word for lowly, in the Magnificat, right? Uh, You you know that that moment where she and Elizabeth are having this little inner utero moment where they both realize, oh no, no, Jesus is actually the Messiah? You know that moment? We're told that Mary sings a song in that moment, and she says that God has exalted those of humble, lowly estate. Later on in the gospel accounts, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says something that most people think is a famous thing for him to say. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Same word. So clearly, 
right? Clearly, James has several layers of definition wrapped up in this word. Obviously so. But at the same time, James' immediate context kind of demands that economics plays the most prominent role. He's writing to an audience that has faced some really, really dark days. We, we, we talked a few weeks ago about how uh, they would have been incredibly familiar with loss, financial and otherwise. Maybe many of them have, have been uprooted from their homes, uprooted from their families and are living in new lands. Some of them have actually lost family members due to this persecution. Murder was on the menu. you got some folks who have always... In this church body, some folks that have always sort of lived in the reality of the lowly station in life. And you've got some other folks in the church family who have recently been forced into this lowly station. And whether you've been on the receiving end of persecution or not, I think most of us probably say no. Whether you've been on the receiving end of persecution or not, I think, I think all of us have probably all found ourselves in moments where it was made crystal clear to us that we are in the category of the have-nots in this world. Right? And while others were getting this thing or gaining that thing, it was personally out of our own reach. No matter how hard you fought, you just couldn't get there. And for some of us, that, those are the bigger you know, life-shaping kinds of things being able to pay the bills and put food on the table or maybe you tried everything in your power but you still weren't able to get the clear cancer screening right disease and disability outpaced everything you tried for others Maybe it's not the big stuff. Maybe, it's, maybe we can point to a, a much longer, smaller list of things. Maybe, maybe that, that position at work that you tried really hard to get, it just, it just wasn't on the table for you. Your effort, even your best effort, just wasn't good enough. Or times when, when we thought something would finally make us happy, finally bring us satisfaction, and, and instead it turned out to be hollow, and you just can't figure out why it turned out to be hollow. Happiness still wasn't found in the place that you invested every bit of yourself. Ever found yourself in that moment? Man, I have. Fill in the blank. We have all been in the position of the lowly brother. All of us. And James says that instead of wallowing in our lowliness, that we should instead boast in our exaltation. What's that about? Either... Either James is calling his audience to turn a blind eye to their situation, pretend that life is going very differently than it's actually going, or or James is calling his audience to look past their immediate circumstances onto a different type, a different kind of exaltation. Hey, which one do you think it is? We're going with option B? We're all going with option B, right? All right, so what would that exaltation be? The answers are being raised up with Christ. Are being raised up with Christ for the follower of Jesus, for the one who has placed their faith in the death on their behalf of Jesus as a justification for our debt of sin, for the one who has placed their faith in his resurrection for our own future glorification in his presence. Whatever fill in the blank lowly station you happen to find yourself in right now is at worst, hear me, at worst temporary. 
It's temporary. It is at worst a momentary blip on an eternal timeline. Now that does not negate the very real pain and heartache that comes with facing down trials. It does not make them any less severe and it does not make them any less of an immediate burden on you. What it does do though, what it does do is redirect the level of your eyes to what lies beyond that trial. Oh, and it also takes the immediate burden off of you and your shoulders from being the one who has to fix the problem in order for you to finally achieve quote-unquote victory. It's not on you. It's not your job. Regardless of the trials in your life, whether they are the most severe that anyone has ever actually faced, or even if they're just the seemingly smaller ones that still really matter an awful lot to you, those who are united to Christ in his life and united to Christ in his death and united to Christ in his resurrection, they are promised by a God, by a God who's never ever once broken a promise, by the way, that there is a coming day when they will finally receive dignity and finally receive justice and finally receive satisfaction and finally receive rest forevermore. And if nothing else, James says that the lowly brother can boast in that quickly approaching exaltation. If all you got is that, at least you got that. You can lead the charge in celebrating God for what he has done and is doing and is promised to one day do. But I use the phrase at worst. I use the phrase at worst. Boasting in our future exaltation is the worst case scenario. Because in the context of a local church, the lowly brother can also boast in his present exaltation. It's not just a future reality, it is also a present reality. In the context of the local church, those of humble station are raised to equal footing as everybody else in the family. They are raised up. Station in life, quote-unquote, it cannot and it does not and it will not gain you or lose you your place in the numbering of the redeemed. It cannot create a place for you and it cannot lose a place for you in God's people. That place can only be freely given by the divine station of another. And he chooses, freely and joyfully chooses to give it to those who have come to him in saving faith. Period. This is a recurring theme throughout the book of James. Those of you who have been, who have been reading ahead, you, you already know that little Jimmy's going to hammer on this a lot. Over and over again. Get, get ready over the next several months. We're going to have to talk about it. But James is not only concerned with those of humble estate. Look at, look at verse 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, comma, verse 10, and the rich in his what? His humiliation. So we got another paradox, right? We got another paradox. In what universe are those of high station brought down? There's, there's a little bit of debate about it. James does not explicitly call the rich brothers here in verse 10 like he did in verse 9. So some take that to mean that James is now discussing those outside of the church. I believe that's a stretch. Uh, I personally think that, that James is talking about Christians here. And so I think the brothers that he mentions in verse 9 is inferred in the next part of this sentence. We haven't changed subjects. We just flipped to the inverse example. All right? 
And so I think he's still talking about Christians. But, but once that's settled, you've got to... Once that's settled, you've also got to do something with the word rich, right? James used the word rich. We got some rich folk in the room? I don't know if we got some rich folk in the room. Who's James talking about? Well, the Greek word that he uses there is literally talking about the abundance of material possessions. There's no dodge in that. The abundance of material possessions. You can use the exact same phrasing in the Greek to talk about somebody who is living in the lap of luxury, who is experiencing opulence right now. You would say it in the exact same way in the Greek. That person just has all the things. But James gives some nuance to his definition of rich when he follows it up with his word choice for humiliation. All right? It's the same form, or it's a, a form of the same word, we should say, uh, of what we saw in just a second ago back in verse 9 for lowly. Same root. And so if he meant something more than economic by it back in verse 9, he's still in the same sentence. He doesn't mean something other than, he, he means something more than economic by it now as well. It can't just be purely economic. And the translator's choice of humiliation in this moment ought to clue us in on that reality. Uh, the, the idea genuinely carries the tone of being humiliated. Um, there are times in the Bible when you need to draw a clear line of distinction between humiliation and humbling. Those two things have some overlap of definition, but they're not the same thing. All right, Humiliation and humbling. Uh, the Bible tends to point more towards humbling as a good thing, and it doesn't really ever talk about humiliation in a good way. But this is not one of those moments. James used the word humiliation, and he used it on purpose. James is talking about being actively lowered in what people think about you, not what you think about yourself, and what other people think about you. All right? uh, it, it is the act of losing status, losing prestige in someone else's eyes. It's a forceful stripping away of what you find your pride in. Yes, James is writing to an audience that has largely faced dark days, but that's not everybody's story. There's a lot of those stories, but it's not everybody's story. Some have fled and haven't lost as much. Some have been removed from their homes back in Judea, and they're now maybe even doing better. Things have been going pretty well since they, uh, since they left home. They're kind of doing well for themselves. In addition to that, the church is quickly growing with new believers from these new locations. And, and some of them may even be doing incredibly well. Rich would be the appropriate word to describe them in all its many layers. So you got some folks in the church family who are in this lowly station, and you've got some other folks in the church family who are, at least relatively speaking, in an incredibly high station. you got some people whose lives seem to be put together in some things, some people that... Well, it doesn't matter how hard they try and which way they turn, their life is always falling apart around them. And while it's true that all of us have experienced moments of realizing that we were a have-not in this world, I, I think it's equally true, just as true, that we have all also experienced moments where it was made crystal clear to us that we are in the category of have, right? There were times when we looked up and, and things were just clicking, right? It's a good day. It's a good day. And some of those things are the, 
or the really big things, the results cashed in just like you planned them. And everybody else was a witness to how great your life was going, right? Isn't that the best feeling in the world? The big stuff, like, like, uh, like the big raise, you got the raise, and, and the cancer screening did come back clear, you beat it, man, Woo! Or maybe it's the smaller stuff, right? Your coffee order was perfect on the way in. We sang your favorite song and you're getting tacos after church. What a day. What a day. I'm not getting tacos after church. (laughs) Fill in the blank, we've all been the rich brother. We have. And James says that instead of reveling in our richness, that we should instead boast in our humiliation. And either, either James is calling his audience to turn a blind eye to their situation, pretend that their life is not going exactly the way that it's going right now, or or James is calling his audience to look past their immediate circumstances of blessing and onto a humiliation of a different kind. Hey, we think it's it's option B. Are we all going to go with option B? So what would that humiliation be? The answer is our intentionally kneeling at the feet of our perfect king. Intentionally kneeling at the feet of our perfect king, for the follower of Jesus, for the one who has truly confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Savior and Lord, whatever fill-in-the-blank high station you happen to find yourself in right now is at best, at best, temporary. It is at best a momentary blip on an eternal timeline. Now, that does not negate the blessing that God has seen fit to provide you right now. It does not make those blessings any less real or any less joy-producing for his people. We ought to love them and love the giver of them. What it does do, though, is redirect the level of your eyes past the temporary reality of that blessing and onto the surpassing and never-ever-ending value of the one who saw fit to give it. The giver of those good gifts, whether whether. Your blessings are the most amazing blessings that anybody's ever been blessed by, experienced before, or even if they're the seemingly smaller ones that just matter a whole lot to you. Those who are submitted to Christ in His reign as Lord and King over all, they are promised by a God who has never ever once broken a promise that there is a coming day when all of the things in this world that people put their hope in will be burned away as dross. And with that coming day in mind, James says that those brothers whom God has allowed to experience riches in this season should never, ever think too highly of them. They should instead boast in the station that God sees fit to place them in, in the kingdom to come. You can lead the charge in celebrating God for who He is and what He has done and is doing and will one day do. But I use the phrase at best, right? Boasting in our future humiliation is not the only angle to this. It's not just a future reality. It is also a present reality. Because within the context of the local church, the rich brother can also leverage his riches for others today. He can also leverage his riches. In the the context of the local church, those of high station are blessed for the purpose explicitly for the purpose of being a blessing to others. The Bible teaches that about as clearly as it teaches anything else, that we are stewards, not owners. Over and over again, this reality hits you like a sledgehammer. 
We are not owners. We are stewards of blessing. It teaches us that we will one day stand before the one of infinite station and be expected to give an account for how we handled his stuff. We'll be expected to give an account of how faithful we've been with the blessing that he saw fit to place in our hands. Station in life cannot, does not, and will not gain you or lose you your place in the numbering of the redeemed. It cannot create a place for you, and it cannot and never will cost you a place. That place can only ever be freely given by the divine station of another. And in his infinite wisdom, he saw fit that the only way to gain it would be to give it to those who have come to him in saving faith. So, so why, why then does station matter? Like, why are we even talking about this? You got something? Whatever. You, got, you don't got something? Whatever. Why, why is that even something that James wants to talk about? Well, it's because we're only a third of the way through this paragraph. Look at the rest of verse 10. And the rich in his, in his humiliation, comma, because like a flower of the grass... He will pass away, verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, so what did James just say? We said that everything's got a shelf life. Everything in this world has an expiration date, especially riches. Especially riches. Flowers don't live forever. You might have a gorgeous lawn, that's great, but eventually you're going to get to full summer sun and that grass is going to get burnt. All right? Every single gray haired person in this room used to be a really pretty 20 year old. Listen, even if you manage to escape the thieves, Jesus promises that moth and rust will eventually take it. That's how the world works. Work, work your tail off. Maybe you will guard it from the thieves. It'll eventually be claimed by moth or rust. And a lot of people in our culture, I do think, at least by my own sitting back and watching, a lot of people in our culture do, I think, finally get to a place where they realize that this world is fleeting. They realize that no matter how hard they try, things fall apart at the end of the day. Most, you know, But instead of... Instead of stopping and wondering if they chase after the wrong things, they just move on to the next thing that fails them. They kick it into overdrive and you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. YOLO! James tells his audience, an audience that is either currently facing trials, has recently faced trials, or can reasonably expect to face trials again soon. He tells his audience that one of the ways that we endure trials is to walk into them already having a proper accounting of the temporality of our circumstances. High, low, every station in between. And then once, we have, once we're able to look past that, that temporality, uh, we are then less distracted and can properly celebrate the eternal things that God has graciously chosen to, to do for us now and into the future. We're not too impressed with the temporary stuff. It can come or go. But look at this. Let's celebrate this. A Christian is not called to ignore the reality 
of their situation. Good things are truly good and bad things are truly bad. But good things and bad things are both in the same category of being truly temporary. They have a shelf life, even if you carry them all the way to the grave. Except, of course, except, of course, is if you come to the the table without the Christian's perspective on eternity. If if all you got is your 80 years to try to eke out your version of, of happiness, well, then trials can't be anything to you but joy thieves. They can't be anything to you but something that robs you of everything that you want. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, there is an eternal joy that is immune from everything in this world. It's immune to trials and it's even immune to to opulence. And that joy is precisely what Jesus would have you hold today. The Bible teaches that all people by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that hell. It's not, not a fun thing at all, but the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that God makes us alive together with Christ through his grace. The good news is that God has sent his son, Jesus He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can do that. I love to be helpful to you. You can respond to him in a way that forever changes what you chase after in this world, precisely because he calls you to chase after himself and he's a lot better. Love to be helpful to you. After we're done, let's let's talk here. What if you're here this morning and you're not already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond? Well, there's this really, really special way that Jesus gave his people to celebrate and remember what it is he has done a symbolic meal that paints a picture of his broken body and shed blood right we talk about that part of the reality that angle of looking at it a lot around here but it just so happens there's more nuance to that than what often gets shared from the stage if you're thinking through what the lord's supper is just so happens that the exact same meal teaches another incredibly important truth about his church there's only one table here It doesn't matter what station you walked in the door with today. We got one table. It does not matter if you walked in the door this morning believing that you're a have, believing that you're a have not, lowly or rich, I don't care. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and you cling to Jesus as your Savior, then this, this, this table's for you. It's for you. Station in life cannot earn your place here kidding me you don't got that in you but a repentant heart can that does open this table to you and so i'm going to pray and jb's going to come back up and play and play a song and here's how we're going to do it today we're going to make one painfully long slow line that drives the point home this morning that no matter how you walked in the door here We all find our hope in only one Savior.
Let's pray. If I could get our deacons to, who are serving this morning to come forward, please. We'll, we'll come down this aisle or around this way. You'll go ahead and take the elements right here. There's a little basket there if you want to drop the cup off. That way you don't have to carry off the trash. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for being a God of infinite station who loves the lowly and even the ones who pretend to be of high station. And whether we need to be raised up this morning or we need to be torn down. Thank you for sending your son to do everything we needed him to do, to be reconciled to you. Our place here is purchased by another. So God, help us in this moment to think seriously about our sins, think, think seriously about our desperate need for salvation. Let us not rush to this table, but cause us to understand the weightiness of what Jesus did on the cross. Sin has a price. But you covered it. Willingly and joyfully. Without even missing a beat. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Even by watching the believers take these elements, would you use it to teach and open up hearts and eyes to hear and know? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.